0: Well, this week, I did, for the first time, a first aid training course. As a staff, we learned what to do if someone on site gets bitten by a snake. I'm not sure how common that is in Kirribilli. I learned what to do if someone's choking, CPR, a defib. I also learned which staff members I would prefer to do first aid on me and those who I would prefer not to. It was a very enlightening day. But I did rightly or wrongly the practical part before the theory. It's been a whole day learning of what to do, and then that afternoon, the why. And as we jump into Romans, coincidentally, it's the same approach we're taking. We are bungee jumping straight into Romans chapter 12, which is all practical. It's how should a Christian live? And those of us who are more practical, pragmatic, we think, yes, yes. Some of us who are more theoretical and we love theology are thinking, why? Why did we skip the first 11 chapters? Whether you're practical or you like theory, whether you like theology or how to, the Bible never divides the two. We need both, no matter matter your preferences. We need both. And the two verses that were just read to us, Romans chapter 12, bridge the gap between the two. I don't think you get a more clearer passage in the whole of Bible which brings together the why and the what does it look like, the theology and the practice. So what we're going to do is just, as we kick off this series, look at those two verses. Page 11 of your sermon series booklet, two verses, chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, and slowly unpack them. And when I say slowly, I mean that, because we're going to spend... Five minutes looking at the first word. What is it? Therefore. That is an important word. Therefore. It's a conjunction for those playing at home, but it is very much an important word. Do you know a word? Every worldview, every perspective, every religion has a therefore at the heart of it. What you need to do is work out what comes before it and what comes after it. Because every worldview, whether it's Islam or Santa, whether it's secularism or Satanism, it has a a therefore in it. To explain, I need some help. Condies, do you mind coming up? Collinses, do you mind coming up? Um, The Hawkses, do you mind coming up over here? And I need one more. Beck, do you mind coming up here? All you need to do is hold a piece of paper. They don't know they're doing this. But it is adamant... And helpful as we do it. Keith, can you stand here? This is the therefore. It's a very important word. What comes before it, what comes after it is so telling. Can I have three on this side and three on that side? They have no idea they're doing this. They just thought they were coming to church. On this side. If I give you these two, can you hold them up? And then these two. There we go. If you want to come closer, come to the stage. Most worldviews will have this at the front, something along the lines of, "Give to charity, respect people, love your neighbor, be a good person, clean your room, be merciful. Therefore Yeah, if you hold them both up. Therefore, God loves you. You receive gifts. Heavens coming receive mercy, you're wanted, you're forgiven. That describes most worldviews. Do this and you'll get this. If you put your effort into here, you'll receive this. Christianity is the exact opposite. Can you guys swap? Christianity has a therefore, but what comes before and what comes after is radically different. It starts with the fact that God loves you. You receive grace, gifts. Heaven is coming. You receive mercy. You're wanted. You're forgiven. Therefore, give to charity. Respect people. Love your neighbour. Be a good person. Clean your room. Be merciful. This order is key. If you understand nothing else, know this order. Because only this order will promote genuine change in your life. That you want to change. Not because you have to. Because you want to. Let's give him a round of applause. Take a seat. You'll notice this verse, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. We have titled this series, From Grace We Love not we love in order to get grace, right? And those five words, in view of God's mercy, are basically one big summary of the previous 11 chapters. That the first 11 chapters are all about the um, overwhelming amount of mercy that God has shown us. It tells you in 11 chapters that though we were enemies, we now have peace with God through Jesus, that though we were legally condemned and up to our neck in our sin, Jesus on that cross justified us and we are free. Though we all are deserving of God's rightful anger towards us, Jesus took that anger on himself. Though we are walked away from God, Jesus brought us into God's family and were adopted in. Though we were dead in our sin, Jesus made us alive. Though we keep on sinning after accepting Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit means we are no longer condemned, but we're children and we're conquerors. Though we are a slave to sin, the Holy Spirit empowers us to say, no, that's not who I am anymore. Though we were not attractive or the least bit wanted, Jesus, God the Father, chose us before creation of the world. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm a little bit offended, great, you're starting to get Romans. Romans as a book is offensive. It is offensive because you need to be offended in order to receive mercy. To say, actually, the situation is a lot worse. I'm more of a sinner than I've realized I need mercy. But it is also offensive, the amount of mercy that God has given us, if you want to use that word. It is overwhelming the amount of mercy that God has shown you, has shown you, is showing you, will show you. Until you get that, it would not bring about genuine change. And notice it starts there, in view of God's mercies, then the why. What does it look like? What does it say? In view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper wisdom. Sorry. This is your true and proper worship. Now, notice the word sacrifice. Now, that word sacrifice is not very common in our culture. In other cultures, it's a bit more common, but it's not so much common in our culture. But if you were in the first century, you would go to a place, a temple. You would bring your sacrifice, you'd place it on the altar, holy and pleasing. To God, and that would be your act of worship. Sacrifice was very, very much common, but you notice that it doesn't say offer a sacrifice or make a sacrifice. What does it say? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, why would God be interested in your body? Everything is a bit overweight, a bit underweight, a bit hairy, a bit achy, a bit blotchy. Why God? He's not interested in the way your body looks. But he's interested in what your body does, how you behave, how you speak, how you treat others, how you interact with those around you. Because notice, it offers your body as a living sacrifice, that your whole life is dedicated to pleasing God, to worshipping Him. Because in the end, well, it's His body. He made it, He redeemed it, bought it as a price, and the Holy Spirit. Lives within us. So you know what that means. That verse means that in line of Jesus, we do not go to a place of worship. But wherever your body goes, there becomes a place of worship. And presumably, your body goes with you everywhere. I'm guessing. When it says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, that is now changing the game so that every place you go becomes an opportunity of worship. That what was limited to a particular building in the Old Testament is expanded now to everywhere you go is a chance, an opportunity to worship God. Now, this, I think, is actually quite hard to comprehend and hard to even just know but actually to think about. Right, and I think a couple of reasons why it's a bit hard. One is terminology, and I think it's a bit heightened in this day and age with COVID. Right, every time the restrictions come out, new restrictions. You know, there's more, uh, there's less. Yada yada. I'm always looking for those words of place of worship. You know, how does it affect church? Right. But to be honest, when you know Gladys or New South Wales Health say that uh, all all places of worship must wear masks, it's now mandatory. Well, I always want to call on the phone and say, Christians, we need to wear masks everywhere because everywhere is a place of worship. I'm not going to do that because I'm not a jerk, right? (laughs) But that kind of terminology, this is a place of worship, place of worship, it it sinks in, right? I think also, too, one else aspect that hinders it is we live in a secular society which very much likes to divide the sacred from the secular, right? And so we can compartmentalize our lives thinking this is the spiritual moment and then this is the secular moment, right? But according to the Bible, all of life is sacred. All of life is worship. And another aspect is, depending on your church background, right, if you sort of grew up Catholic or have a more Pentecostal background, uh, those denominations can uh, more so than others sort of uh, shape that this is the time of worship, either the Eucharist, or the Mass, or with a worship pastor when we're worshipping. Now, the Sydney Anglican response is, uh, all of life is worship except the gathering, as a sort of stereotype. That's kind of gone too far. But it can very much influence, again and again, is this worship? And it is, Right? Tozer says, the local church exists to do corporately what every believer should do individually. That this is corporate worship, that we are worshiping God as his gathered people. But if we limit it to just this, oh, short-changing. It's too easy. If worship is just singing, that's only 10 minutes of your week. Your whole life is an act of worship. Not just an hour on Sunday. You get that? Your whole life, every moment, is a chance to worship God. Let me flesh this out, right? When it comes to your work, your workspace, whether you're part time, full time, whether you're working from home, working in the city or in the burbs, whether you're paid or unpaid, your workplace is a place of worship. When you give that presentation, when you're crunching the numbers, when you're teaching that class, if you're doing it a way that doesn't plagiarize, doesn't inflate the numbers, is just and true and kind to those around, that is worshipping God. When you're working hard and no one notices, maybe because you're a stay-at-home parent and you're changing that napping. Maybe you're working from home and you say, I'm actually going to work hard and not go on social media. When you make those decisions, I'm going to work hard and steward the time that I've been trusted well, that is worshipping God. When you have a day of rest, right? We say, I'm not going to check emails. I'm not not going to do that. I'm going to find my identity in Christ, not my work. That is worshipping God. Your work is not just work. It is an opportunity to worship. Other areas. When it comes to loving and honouring your parents, if they're alive, and for some of us they're getting older and more physically draining, sitting with them, taken to the shops, their frontal part of their brain is hardening and they're becoming a bit more blunter, right? It's a bit more hard. When you sit with them and you love them and you care for them, that is an act of worship to God, holy and pleasing. For those of you who are married, your bedroom is a place of worship. When you seek to build up your spouse... Tell them what you find attractive, what you find sexy about them. Actually seek to serve their sexual desires, their needs, putting them first. That not only is a good time, but it is an act of worship. Some me, you are thinking, well, if I have sex with my girlfriend, is that worship? No, no, no. Holy and pleasing, right? We're doing things what God wants. But that too, if you're married, that is an act of worship. When it comes to taking out your credit card and paying pass, beep. That can become an act of worship, whether you're spending money so that others can be blessed, paying for someone's food or bills. When it comes to uh, pay pass and you want to not, uh, when you're buying something and you use it, let's say you buy a pair of swimmers and you go to the beach and you praise God, thank Him for His creation, that can be a moment of worship when you take out your card and actually put it back in and say, you know what, I'm not going to impulse buy. I'm going to be content with what I have. That's worship. Even when you're driving in your car and it's peak hour and you've got your seatbelt on, you're obeying the rules and you're patient with those who don't indicate. That is a moment of worship. Friends, the point is don't limit your worship to an hour on Sunday. Every moment of your week is an opportunity to use the body that God has saved to worship God, to do things that are holy and pleasing in his sight. You know what all the Old Testament sacrifices had in common? And they're placed on the altar. They're all dead. We are a living sacrifice. You know what the problem with the living sacrifice is? It can walk off the altar. And you and I are called to sacrifice our bodies for Jesus. But we have the choice of every moment of every day, am I going to stay on the altar and worship God, or am I not? Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. But worship is not just what you do, but also what you think. Because have a look, at verse two. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, those words, do not conform to the pattern of the world, are very easy to say, right? Very hard to do. It is so hard not to conform, right? I grew up western Sydney uh, under the shadow of Rudy Hill RSL, right? Now, you probably don't know this, the North Shore, but most jokes uh, This area, particularly Mossman, is the butt-end of most jokes in Western Sydney. Sorry to say, right? So, me moving from Rudy Hill to Kirribilli, I had to swallow my pride, right? But I was adamant moving here, I'm not going to conform, right? I'm not going to conform. But it didn't take long before I was drinking mineral water. (laughs) And I bought a pair of boat shoes. And the other day I found myself beginning a conversation with, and what school did you go to? <laughs> it's so hard not to conform. You stay around an area long enough and you will conform. But we're called, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Whether it's your upbringing, your schooling, your peers, your social media, what you consume with a Netflix podcast, we are all being shaped Say, be like us, be like us. And every culture from Babel to ours doesn't want to conform to God's ways, but say, conform to us. And conforming is not something that just teenagers have to battle with. All of us do. Our culture, the one we live in, is telling you messages like, the purpose of your life is to be happy, conform, conform. It's telling you, in order for you to live a fulfilled life, you need to have sex. Conform, conform. It's telling you things like, you must live a comfortable life, and if you ever need extra time or money, then be generous. Conform, conform. It is telling you, God is not needed, why bring him up? Conform, conform. It is telling you, all religions are the same, there are many paths. Conform, conform, conform. Now, some people think, well, why not just leave this culture? But if you go to another culture you're going to get told to conform just to a certain, different set of ideas. What's the solution? Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It doesn't say, don't conform, so hide in a cave, wait till Jesus comes back. No, no, no. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how does this happen, right? You read Romans 8, which is a glorious chapter. There the Holy Spirit we're told is in the business of transforming our lives, right? Of living at, so that we would live out our, uh, our identity right, of who we are and that he is changing you in ways you do not know. But here we're called to actively renew our mind. Now, how does that happen? Well, the question is, whose voice are you listening to? Because we, will, we all listen to the world around us, the voice that we're getting again and again. But are we listening to the voice of God? Let's talk about penguins for a moment. If you've ever seen either in real life, most likely on a documentary, the thousands of penguins down in the Antarctica. Uh, you look at them, right? And it's just basically walking to a tuxedo party. It's ever the black and white, as far as the eye can see. And I saw this documentary, right? With how does a baby penguin know and identify its mum or dad when it comes back from fishing? How? Amongst the overwhelming crowds of penguins. But I've worked out recently that even from an egg, the little chick is hearing its mum and dad's voice and learning it and knowing it. And as it hatches out, it's listening to its mum and dad's voice so that when the mum and dad come back from fishing amongst the crowds, it knows its mum and dad's voice. It learns it because its very life depends on it. And friends, as you look out at the crowds the overwhelming culture that we live in, whether it's the beast of secularism, whether it's the pull to just be like us, to live in a culture that believes things that didn't believe it five minutes ago, but now it does and you've got to keep up, you've got to keep up, you've got to keep up. It can be overwhelming. But here's the thing. All you need to know, all you need to do is to listen to your Father in Heaven's voice. That's The voice that we need to hear. We are immersed in our culture. We need to immerse ourselves in God's word, to know God's word, to listen to Him—not know facts about the Bible, you know, not how old Abraham was when he died. No, no, but knowing God, knowing who He is and what and how He has set up this world, knowing yourself as you read the The Bible—that was very much a mirror. It shows you things about yourself that you may not see, but it knows you better than you know yourself. It tells you correct thinking and gives you good habits for life, to knowing God and his word. And every time you read it, every time you immerse yourself, as little or as big as it may be, you are renewing your mind, a mind that is broken, that wants to reject God, but as you read it and renew it by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are forming a new pattern. For those who say, well, I just love Jesus, I don't really need the Bible, what you will end up doing is put Jesus on a leash and he will come with you wherever you want to go and in the end, that is not a real relationship. And my big, big fear for Christians in the West, whether they're left or right leaning, is that this renewing of the mind is not happening. Yes, there is a love for Jesus, but clutching onto knowledge of previous generations of Christians and not seeking to renew our minds. I read a book by Bill Bryson about the body. Right? It goes through all the different parts of the body and talks about the gut and nutrition and highlights this paradox in America where Americans are, have more access to food than most countries, and yet nutritionally they're one of the unhealthiest It's sort of clash. And I think that's the case when it comes to Western Christians. Right, We have access so much to God's Word, so many translations, but spiritually we are malnourished and dry. Just like being a living sacrifice means you can wander off and on the altar. Renewing your mind is a constant effort. It's not something you did just when you became a Christian or back in the days of uni. It is a constant effort of renewing your mind. And it is only way, friends, that you'll be able to do this last verse. What does it say? Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, when, as soon as that word will comes out, you might be thinking something along the lines of, if I read the Bible, then I'll know the, the plans that God has for my life. Where to live, who to marry, what job to take. So sort of that seeking God's will. To be honest, that's not really a biblical way of speaking. It's a modern, modern Christian way of speaking. When the Bible talks about God's will, it means His moral will. How He wants you to live. How He wants you to behave. And here's the good thing, the liberating thing, is you don't need to guess what God's will for your life is. Now, to be told, we don't know his sovereign will, right? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We know his sovereign will by looking in the past. But when it comes to how he wants you to live, his will for your life and how he wants you to behave, you don't have to guess like it's a game of hide and seek of where it is. No, no, no. In the next seven weeks, and we unpack the rest of these chapters in Romans, you're going to hear God's will for your life of how to treat those in your world. How to interact with other people. How do you deal with people who hurt you, who are an enemy? How to deal with people who are above you, like the government, or people who you think are below you, like weaker members of the church. And as we engage in this work of renewing our minds, thinking God's thoughts, bending our will into what's God's will, we will be able to what? Test and approve test it, to try it out, to see. actually this works. This is not just theory, it actually works in your life. But not only to do that, but to approve, to say not only works, but it's good. That God's will for my life is good and pleasing and perfect. And I not just know it, but I know it. Where are you on the spectrum of conforming to renewing? There's one word which we haven't unpacked. And it's quite a simple word. It's the word urge. He said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to do this. The word of encourage, push, exhort. In other words, believers, become what you are. Do not compartmentalize your worship. Do not conform to this world. But offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Renewing your mind to be in line with God's will. You know, I heard this week that when it comes to those who have a lung transplant, about 40% of them have it because they previously were a smoker. And the emphysema has affected them and they needed a lung transplant, about 40%. And interesting, of those 40%, a couple of them, after lung transplant, go back to smoking. He you ask them why? and she's. My friends around me were. I couldn't help it. I couldn't implement the necessary changes, and they go back. But a large number of those 40%, it's been given a new lease on life, and they know it every time they breathe in of every moment of every day. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been given a new lease on life A new lease on life made possible because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life. Do we deserve it? Not in the slightest. God's mercies have been overwhelming. But we are called not to conform to those around us. Not to go back to old ways. But to take every moment of every day as an opportunity to worship the God who has given so much. In a moment, we are going to share in the Lord's Supper, a meal that we take that so vividly reflects upon the mercy of God, and we take it to remind ourselves of what God has done, so that we go out to be a living sacrifice.